The Sermon on the Mount is more relevant for us today than the original hearers because Jesus's audience could never fulfill the higher standards of grace while under the law. So how do we as Christians share the Sermon on the Mount to our audience? In today's message, Pastor Bank continues to help us live, love, give, and serve more as the Holy Spirit helps us with being more. Morning, everybody. Wait a minute, am I in the right place? I said, good morning, everybody. Praise God. For a moment, I, was th- I thought maybe I was in a mosque or something, you know. But thank God for all of you. We bless God for you being here in the sanctuary this morning. And for those of you who's joining us via various means of streaming, we welcome you as well to the service. Thank God for you. And we pray that something that God is saying this morning will totally, completely redesign your life, bless you, establish you, and cause you to flourish in the kingdom of God in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. amen and amen and amen. As usual, I'd like to let you know that this is World Artichoke for All Nations, where we are building strong families and serving global communities. And so again, we welcome all of you. We thank God for you. Uh, Subi, it's good to see you. Praise God. Amen, 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 amen. I thought I saw Shola a minute ago. Where is, oh, there she is. Praise God. It's good to see you. And the girls. Wow. Wonderful. Amen. You know, as the praise and worship was going on, my heart is so full, so full this morning for various reasons. And first of all, let me just get this out. I want to uh, uh, commiserate uh, with the Okereke family uh, for the promotion of Ikechi, who is now, as we know, in the bosom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it came to us by surprise. We were all shocked by it. And uh, it really, really uh, shook me to, to some degree. Uh, but as I pondered and began to think about, you know, uh, of what we, what we consider to be untimely departures, uh, I, I had to come to one conclusion, as difficult as it is, that no matter what happens, no matter how it happens, no matter when it happens, the final uh, epitaph is that God is good. God is not only good, he's faithful. We do not always understand what he does. We do not always understand why and when he does it. The scripture tells us that the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But but those things that are revealed belong unto us, unto our children. And so that is my assurance this morning. And hopefully your assurance. So I want to encourage all of you to be strengthened and to be encouraged and comforted, but at the same time for us to extend the gesture of love to Uche and the rest of the family. Amen. This is a very difficult time for them. You know, I was just going through scriptures, and this is not my message this morning. I I looked at the life of John the Baptist, who was the one who introduced the Lord Jesus Christ himself. John the Baptist. And yet, he lived to be 30 years old. You will think that Jesus would have taken a personal interest and said, you know what, John, be my front runner. I'm going to make you live to 120 years old. That's not the way it is. That's not the way it is. And then you go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. John, the apostle of love, who sat in the bosom of the Lord Jesus, to whom Jesus entrusted his mother at the cross. 
Remember the story? He told John, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. And yet John was, well, I won't say sentence, was uh, isolated in the island of Patmos and ultimately had to be boiled to death. And you want to wonder, this is the one that took up the Lord's mother. Would Jesus have intervened and make sure that didn't happen? No, he didn't do that. I'm saying out of this verse, he says, stop asking the wrong questions. Stop asking the wrong questions. The only thing we can take away from the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, God is good, God is faithful, and my commitment and your commitment is trust him. Trust him. Because we see through a glass darkly, and therefore we are, we are, we are left with very limited information or knowledge. Amen? Amen. Having said that, let's get to the message this morning. Praise God. Uh, I want to thank God for the last three weeks. Uh, Pastor Larry has done a very, very incredible, uh, beautiful work of challenging all of us for the last three weeks on the messages he brought on, uh, on, 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 to be more, to live more, to love more, to give more, to serve more. Personally for me, I have been tremendously challenged by those messages. And I hope it's the same for you. Amen? To live more, love more, give more, and serve more. So this morning, I just want to uh, build a little bit more on that message because really there's, there's very little else to say. It really covered all the various angles. And I hope by now all of you understand the fact that Jesus, through the covenant of grace that is given us, is challenging all of us to be more in various aspects of our life. And I really, really pray that you just don't hear this message and go home and just ignore it, but that you will really sit down and ask yourself, God, how can I live more? God, in what ways can I love more? God, in what ways can I give more? And in what ways can I serve more? That is really the cornerstone of everything Jesus came to do. So this morning, I just want to build a little bit on that. Uh, I want to, uh, I will title this message, Being More. So the last three weeks, we heard to be more, B-E, be, be more. So this morning, I just want to speak on being. In other words, how to be more. How, how. I know what more means now, based on the last three weeks. Living more, loving more, giving more, serving more. I know what it looks like now, based on the Sermon of the Mount. Now, if I'm to make that paradigm shift and truly be more, how? How do I get to be so? And so that's what I want to address this morning. The Sermon on the Mount is more relevant for us today than the original hearers. Absolutely. Because Jesus' audience, when he was speaking on that day, could never fulfill the higher standards of grace while under the law. It was an impossible task. So, my, so what I'm getting from that is, even though Jesus was speaking to them, he knew that his target is not just them, but us. Amen. Yes, because in those guys, there was no way they could do or live in the way of the things he was saying. It was that inaugural message for a new era, if you will. 
It was absolutely impossible for those hearers of that day to attain what Jesus was speaking about. It's just like teaching calculus to a five-year-old kid. I mean, how possible is that? Amen? Why? Because 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us that it is impossible for the natural man to receive the things of the Spirit of God. It is impossible. So Jesus was speaking to them, but really speaking through them to us. I know this for a fact because when you go back to the Scriptures, and you guys can give me the, uh, the uh, projection now. If you go back to the Scriptures, you can see the, uh, the disciples who lived with Jesus, who heard him, who were there that day, you can see how they struggled with the things Jesus said. Amen? So I have a chart that I want you guys to put on your overhead, if you can, very quickly. The before resurrection and the after resurrection. If you guys can just do that for me very quickly. Amen? Hallelujah. It was impossible. And we see that. Okay, so here we are. Here we go. Before the resurrection, those disciples who heard the Sermon on the Mount, who heard everything Jesus said, what did they do? On the left-hand side, before the resurrection, they argued and fought among themselves. Oh, really? They didn't hear what Jesus said about no fighting? Number two, they strove for leadership positions. Serving was not on their poor view at all. Number three, they were ethnocentric. For those disciples, being a disciple of Jesus was being Jewish. If you are not a Jew, there was no way. They, did, they didn't even reckon with you. Their entire worldview started and ended with being Jewish. That's who they were. Number four, serving was not a priority for them. That's why in John chapter 13, we saw Jesus took the basin and washed their feet because they were not thinking about serving at all, at all. Now, let's go back then and look at the after resurrection. What happened to these people? Go back to the beginning, please. Number one, there we go. After the resurrection, though, something happened to these disciples. Number one, they lived more. In other words, they became selfless. We see this in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Number two, they loved more. They were no longer vengeful. We see this in Acts chapter 7, verses 55 through 56 and verse 60 during the uh, killing of uh, Stephen. They displayed loving more. And number three, they gave more. All of a sudden, they were willing and freely giving more. Acts chapter 4, verses 33 through 34. And lastly, they served more. We see that in Acts 4, verses 1 through 7. So the question is, how? What happened to them? What happened to this group of men who before, while Jesus was alive, were not able to heed to the message he gave them. But immediately Jesus rose from the dead, we saw a transformation in their lives where they were able to live more, love more, give more, and serve more. What happened? Because what happened to them needs to happen to us. Do you guys hear me? What happened to them needs to happen to us. Now, let me back up a little bit. Why did Jesus give that message? Knowing that those guys could never fulfill it. Why? Why did he do that to begin with? The Bible is very clear. In Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Let's go there for a minute, please. 
Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Romans 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may, be guilt, may become guilty before God. So why did Jesus give that message? He gave the message so that every person who was listening to him will recognize their need for him, Jesus Christ. Amen? Verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So as those guys were listening to that message, they were able to appraise themselves, appraise themselves and say, wait a minute, oh my God, love my enemies? Oh, no, 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 that's not in my point of view. Man, I can't do that. Oh, no, do you not commit adultery? Oh, not even think about it at all. Oh, my goodness. Oh, this is big, big. So everything Jesus was saying to them, they were checking, check, 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 impossible, 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 impossible. And what did that do to them? It rent their hearts to recognize a need for a savior, a need for someone who can help them to upgrade in their thinking, upgrade in their living, upgrade in their giving, upgrade in their serving. Now, thank God for, for Jesus. He will never leave us helpless. He knew they couldn't do it. He knew you and I, like them, can never do it on our own. So what did he do? John chapter 16, in verse 13 and 14. John 16, verse 13 and 14. He gave us the Holy Spirit. He gave us the Holy Spirit. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, what will he do? He will guide you into all truth. Oh, hallelujah. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will, let, he will tell you things to come. Verse 14, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's go back to that verse 13 one more time. That verse 13 one more time. What will the Holy, Holy Spirit do? He will guide you into all truth. Huge, huge, huge point. Guide. He will not just tell you truth. He will guide you. You know, I, uh, well, this is October. In August, I spent a few days in, in, in Turkey. And as part of that trip, I had a tour guide who took us from place to place. Not just a travel agent, a tour guide. Now, there's a huge distinction between a travel agent and a tour guide. A travel agent can sell you all kinds of trips. Book it, sell it, read a brochure and tell you about it but never been there. A tour guide, on the other hand, not only sells you the trip, but can take you on the trip and tell you about the trip, tell you about the places. Why? Because the tour guide is experienced. They know the place. They know where they're taking you. They know the history. They know everything about that. I was shocked. I was shocked. Some of the places went. Now, most Turkish are Muslims. My tour guide was a Muslim. And he took us to a place called Ephesus. I'm, I'm sure you read that in your Bible. Hello? Have you guys ever heard of Ephesus? Oh, okay. Again, I want to make sure I'm not in the mosque. Amen. <laughs> because you guys are looking at me like a good uh, a cattle at a new gate. But anyway. Oh, okay, okay. So, so, so he took us to Ephesus. 
And he began to tell me stories from the book of Acts, from the book of Ephesians, the things Paul did, who spoke to Paul. And I'm saying, I said, whoa. And I began to ask him about his training. And he told me how vast they are trained and how the information they give them. So he was very knowledgeable. Even though he was a Muslim, he knew everything about the Christian faith so that he can tell his tourists everything about the place. Now, why did I tell you this? Jesus said the Holy Ghost will be your guide. He is not going to tell you about a place that has never been. He is going to give you information that is accurate and that is relevant to the situation why he has been there. Not only has he been there, he made the place. The place was not made apart from him. So he has intimate knowledge about living well, loving well, giving more, or rather living more, loving more, giving more, and serving more. He has intimate knowledge about these things. So Jesus said, okay, I get it. I'm telling you things you can understand, like teaching a, a kid calculus. Yeah, I get it. What I will do is I'll give you a helper. I will not leave you as orphans, helpless. I will send the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, please remember he will be your guide. And so that's what changed the lives of those first disciples. And that's what's going to change my life and your life to the glory of God in Jesus' name. So now very quickly to the meat of this message. How? How do I live more? How do I love more? How do I give more? How do I serve more? How? I'm glad you asked. Through the person of the Holy Spirit. Through the person of the Holy Spirit. There are Four critical, oh no, five critical, critical things I want to say about this. Number one, in order for you and I to live more, love more, give more, and serve more, we must be willing to surrender our will. Whew, I see silence. Silence. Now, don't let that word will throw you a curveball. Let me break that down. Let me break that down. December 31st is coming in a couple of months. On that day, many of us will make New Year's resolutions. I want to gain 10 pounds. I want to lose 15 pounds. I want to be five inches taller. I want to have a new degree. I want to buy a new car. I want to buy a new house. I want to get married. I want to have five children. All kinds of resolutions. All kinds. Statistics tell us that by the end of January, 95% of New Year's resolutions are already broken. Because most of those resolutions are made on the basis of what we call willpower. Oh, I'm going to, uh, honey, you know, I'm, I'm just going to, uh, I'm, I'm going to be disciplined this next year. Uh, I'm trusting God. I'm going, to, I'm going to fast twice every week. Share willpower. Oh, honey, I just want, I just want you to know, uh, this next year, I'm going to be more disciplined. I'm going to be in the gym three times a week. I'm going to go from size 10, I'm going to become size 7. 
willpower. Now, when you are saying it, you mean it. Nobody says those things because they just want to be a fool. No, you really mean it. And of course, by January 31st of that next year, you're on your face. Your, your, your New Year's resolutions become last year's <laughs> nightmare. <laughs> now, the reason those things fail was not because of lack of willpower. The reason is the will actually has no power. No power. When we talk about will, we are talking about the human capacity to choose. So for instance, this morning, I had to make the choice. Am I going to wear a T-shirt, a V-neck T-shirt, or will I wear a long sleeve blue shirt? A choice. Ultimately, you can see, I made a choice to wear a blue shirt, not a T-shirt. So my will made a choice. Will is the hinge upon which decisions are made. Just like for a horse that responds to the impulses of the rider. The horse don't determine his, his, own, his, his own course. Somebody is riding that horse and determining turn left, turn right, go uphill, go downhill. Somebody else is controlling, directing what happens to the horse. That's the way our will functions. There are three things you and I must know that influences our will. Three things. This is very important because when you just hear surrender your will, immediately you're thinking willpower. You're thinking, oh man, I can't smile at the girl any longer. I can't, I can't eat agege bread. I can't do this. I can't do that. I don't know why you guys are laughing. Are you guys, are you guys in the spirit or you are in the flesh? You are thinking of all the things you must give up. Three things influence the widow. Number one, and this is huge, what we think create emotions which leads to decisions and actions. Number one thing, what you think, what you are thinking, it creates emotions within you which leads to decisions and actions. Number two, your body, your human body, very complex systems. Do you notice this morning you didn't have to think to say, I want to use the bathroom? You didn't have to pray about that, God, I want to go and use the bathroom. You didn't have to do that. Do you notice you didn't have to pray and say, I, I, I want to breathe? The systems within your body work automatically without any input from you. So those systems are telling you, for instance, I'm thirsty. That impulse from your body that says, I'm thirsty, leads you to get a drink of water to drink. Or I'm hungry to go get some food. So number one, what you think, which leads to decisions and actions. Number two, your body complex. And lastly, societal context or culture, if you will. Oh, no, 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 no. I need, I need to say that again. Please hear what I'm saying. This way. If we are going to be transformed, we need to get this right. Yeah, sir. What are you thinking in your mind? Yeah. How are you responding to the impulse in your body? 
How are you responding to your cultural context? What's happening around us in Atlanta, in Lawrenceville, in Gwinnett, in the United States? How are you responding to the culture in which we're living in? Now, when you read the Sermon of the Mount, like Pastor Larry clearly, beautifully helped us establish, it starts from Matthew chapter 5 through chapter, chapter 7. Watch Jesus' beauty. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, what did John the Baptist say? Say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. What did Jesus say? Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, what did he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, these two verses were the prelude to the sermon. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. He knew what he was about to tell them. And he's preparing them, saying, listen now, in order for you to catch what I'm about to give you, you have to repent. Now, repent here is not what you and I religiously think it is. Get on your knees and say, Father God, I'm so sorry, I stole a loaf of bread. Forgive me. No! No! It's not about stealing a loaf of bread. It's not about stealing money. It's not about adultery. No, that's not what he's saying. Repent in the Greek means metanoia. Which simply means change your mind. Remember, I said Holy Spirit, the first thing that needs, needs to happen is to surrender your will. And that your will means your influences or impulses of what you are thinking about. So the first thing Jesus said to them before he began to even preach, repent. In other words, change your mind. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, I appreciate, I understand the society norms you've embraced over the years. I know where you're coming from. I know where you've been. I know what you've believed. Based on ancient writings, based on the law, I know exactly what you've embraced. However, the kingdom of heaven God's way of doing things is about to happen. Therefore, prepare to change your minds. If you are going to live in this new kingdom, you cannot continue to live in it embracing old norms, embracing old system. You cannot live in this new heaven, this new heavenly things, this kingdom of God, embracing the old things you've always embraced. So repent. Change your mind. In other words, oh. so the old system says, love your neighbor, hate your enemies. It's actually in the book. God actually said that. You know what? Let's read it. No, seriously, because I need to make the point. Deuteronomy chapter 23. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 23, from verses 3 to 6. Let's read it. Thank you. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Can you believe that? God said that. 
okay, just let, let me just take a pause. You know who a Moabite is? Ruth. Who became the wife of Boaz? Who gave back to Obed? Who became the grandfather of David? Who, David, who became the father of Jesus? Here in the scriptures, an Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Ruth, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. Uh, who, who, who brought you here? Do you, do you, do you, don't you understand? Ah, okay, let's read on. <laughs> Even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Verse 4. Why? Why is God going to punish them like that? Because they did not meet, with, meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Baal, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, uh, to curse you. Verse 5. Nevertheless, the Lord your God will not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turn the curse into a blessing for you. And every curse upon your life will be turned into a blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. No curse upon you shall ever come to pass in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. Okay? Because the Lord your God loves you. Now look at verse 6. You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. So the people that Jesus was speaking to, this is what they knew. This is the narrative they've believed. Why? Because that was what was written for them. So Jesus said, ah, you've heard it of old. You love your neighbors, but hate your enemies. Now, I say, now I'm saying to you, I know what you've learned. I know of the norms you've accepted and embraced. I'm aware of it. I'm aware of this scripture. In fact, I wrote this scripture. But now I'm saying to you, love your enemies. Bless them that despitefully use you. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is higher than the law of Moses. Now, please, I, 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 Pastor Larry said this so beautifully, but I just want to make sure we emphasize it because this is where we're going to live a break. Right here. Right here. This is where we live a break. So it's not just me and you hearing this. Oh, I'm thinking, oh, it happened to Moses. Yes, it happened in Deuteronomy. Yes, no, no, no. It's happening to you right now. How, how, me, how am I responding to my wife? When she irritates me, how am I responding to her? Am I playing tit for tat? You did this, I will do that. Hello? How am I responding to my boss? They make my schedule hard, things are tough, they give me all kinds of assignments, I don't like them. How, how am I responding? That joker, I'm going, to, I'm going to pray that God will destroy him or break his neck. Some of you are praying those crazy prayers. I want you to understand, you are not praying heavenly prayers. You are not. Because the kingdom of heaven is different. If you, if, I mean, some of us, you've been told, don't ever marry an American. Oh, oh I, I, no, let me make sure I'm seeing you very well. You can't marry an American. You can't marry a Russian. Oh, don't, don't dare marry a Hispanic. 
Because if you marry a Hispanic, you marry an American, you marry a Canadian, a Russian, all kinds of biases that is based on the norms of the world, not the kingdom of heaven. And we don't understand that heaven is greater than the earth. So Jesus said, repent. Change your mind. Change the way you're thinking. Yes, I understand what you've embraced. In fact, I know it was given to you. Yes, you've been faithful there. But I want to challenge you now. Embrace me and what I'm saying to you. Why? Why should I embrace you, Jesus? Because Jesus, you are the pre-existing eternal son of God. Which means, like the tour guide, you've been there, done that. Which means you understand how it will end up. You know the outcome. And therefore you're saying, don't continue to live the way you used to live. Live more. Love more. Give more. Serve more. Huge. Huge. Those disciples were so ethnocentric, they didn't want to have anything to do with the Jews. Because they thought Jesus was just about them. So, in Acts chapter 10, God gave Peter a vision to go to the house of Cornelius. <laughs> Peter said, God, you don't understand. Do you know who I am? <laughs> I'm a top dog Jew. Hey, do you know me? I'm, the, I'm in charge of the synagogue. The key to the synagogue is in my hand. Me, to go to Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile. Don't you understand that? These guys are not circumcised. I can never go to the house of Cornelius. He's arguing with God. The vision came to him three times. And then finally, it occurred to him, wait a minute. This is what Jesus is talking about. I need, I need to live more and love more. And loving more transcends ethnic boundaries. And then finally, he went. And when he got there, he said, now I know. Oh, hallelujah. I'm praying that same prayer for all of us. Now we know. You only know when you do it. You only know when you do it. So how do we yield to the Holy Spirit? How does the Holy Spirit help me and you to become more, to live more, to love more, to give more, and to serve more? How? Number one, surrender your will. Surrender your will. Number two, trust or, de or depend on him, him, the Holy Spirit. Give me Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, in the Passion Translation place. Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. In the Passion Translation. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Trust in the Lord a little bit. Ah. Okay. I, I don't know. I mean, you guys are as enthusiastic as Louis, Louis Farrakhan in this place. <laughs> Trust in the Lord completely. When things are good, when I'm not so good. When I'm high, when I'm low. Trust in the Lord completely. And do not rely on your own what? Opinions. This is what gets us. I have an opinion about everything. I have my own opinion about everything. And I'm thinking, on the basis of what I'm thinking, my opinion must be correct. 
So that man, that woman that said the wrong thing up to me, that irritated me, I'm going to give him what my opinion is. And Jesus said, I've been there, done that. It doesn't pay. It doesn't pay. Just trust me. Ah, but Jesus, I'm trusting you. This man is going to take advantage of me. This woman is going to, I'm going to trust you in that. Are you kidding me? Trust you. Do you understand? I'm going to get the short end of the stick. Trust you. Jesus said, listen, just trust me. Just trust me. Just trust me. Let me ask you a question. How do you think Mary felt on the day of the crucifixion? The mother of Jesus. How, what emotion will be going through her watching her son? As far as we know, her first son, because to you Africans, the first one is big. Yeah. Her first son flogged publicly, exposed almost to the point of being naked, and agonizing pain on the cross. Your son! And all your neighbors are saying, Mary, you see that? We've been telling you now. We know something's wrong with you. You say you are pregnant by uh, immaculate conception. Who ever heard of that? What kind of a woman are you? See now, see yourself. Could she have thought anything good was going to come out of that? No. No, not at all. And I'm saying that to you and I. When we are going through tough times, when we are between a hard and a, a rock and a hard place, remember that. That for a moment, it looked like the world is against you. But in a moment, it's going to turn around. Amen. Because weeping may endure for a night. But joy comes in the morning time. Unfailingly. Why? He's been there, done that. He's been there, done that. So he says, trust me. You don't understand now, but you will later. Trust me. Trust in the Lord completely and do not rely on your own opinions. With all your heart, rely on him to guide you. And it will lead you in every decision you make. Yeah. How does God guide? How does he do it? Let me go to one more scripture to establish that in Psalms 32 verse 8. How does he guide us? Since that's the promise of Jesus in John chapter 16 verse 13. Give me Psalms 32 verse 8. Thank you. He trusted in the Lord. You see that? You have to trust in him. Then when you trust in him, what does he do? Let, no, no, Psalm 32, verse 8, please. Psalm 32, 32, thank you. Hallelujah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my own eye. Now, when you read scriptures like this, it's like he's repeating itself, himself. I will instruct you. Okay, what does that mean? I will teach you. How is that different? Then I will guide you. Three things. Now, God is not just throwing words out there. Each word I just, I just uh, mentioned have a different meaning. I will instruct you. What does that mean? I'm going to give you knowledge. That's what instruction does. There's an impartation that comes to you from instruction. Then it says, I will teach you in the way you should go. What does that mean? Teaching me in the way to go means I will now help you, Lee, and guide you how to use the knowledge you have. Big difference. It's one thing to have knowledge. It's another thing to know the correct application of that knowledge you have. It's amazing. People can be, opposite, can be on the two sides, two opposing sides in a particular matter, and they're both quoting scriptures to support it. The missing link is they've not been taught on the application. I will instruct you, 
I will teach you. Then he says, I will guide you with my own eye, which means I'm going to coach you through the process. I give you information. I help you know how to apply it, but not only that. I'm not just going to tell you, this is how you do it. No, I'll be right there with you, coaching you on how to get done what you're trying to do. That's what Jesus meant when he says, take my yoke upon you. He, Jesus, yoked together with you. If you understand farming implementation, implements. When two animals are yoked together, this, the, the weaker one or the younger one follows the leader of the bigger one or the older one or the wiser one. That's, that's what Jesus is saying to me and you. Just be yoked together with me. Don't worry. Put me, on, put me on cruise control, if you will. Just yoke. Join, to, join with me. And I will just take you to where you need to be. Amen? Amen. So, again, surrender our will. We trust on him. Uh, yes, and number three, we follow as the spirit leads. Uh, I will emphasize that more next week. I just want to get a chance to find a nice place to line and close, close this message out. Uh, let me just close on this point here. It is very interesting to me that all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, speak about the issue of being a living sacrifice. All four, all four Gospels talk about the issue of me and you being a living sacrifice. I don't have time to go through all of it now. Ah. So I asked myself the question, what is the difference between the sacrifices in the Old Testament versus being a living sacrifice today? And that's where I'm going to close. What's the difference? If the worshiping can come on the platform, what's the difference? What, what, what's so different? This is the difference. In the Old Testament, those sacrifices went to the altar reluctantly. They had to be pulled, dragged, man, dragged, man. Very reluctantly, they went to the altar. That's number one. Number two, none of those animal sacrifices, hear this, had to trust in any system. Mm. They didn't have to trust. Trust was missing. They were dragged and killed. Dragged and killed. There was no element of having to trust beyond the fact that they were just dragged to the altar and killed. Living sacrifices for me and you, we don't get dragged to give up something of a high value for something of a higher value. We volunteer. We surrender. We voluntarily say, you know what? I'm comparing the narrative of Jesus, what he's saying, versus what I used to believe. And I'm changing my mind to embrace what Jesus has given or is saying to me. But why am I changing? Why am I going to now accept what Jesus is saying? Trust. Ooh. Trust. The entire essence of the entire scriptures is brought down to one thing, trust. I'm trusting God that if I, if I believe his narrative, his story, what he's saying about a particular matter, I'm believing him, the outcome is going to be good. That's why 
the greatest prayer you can ever pray. For those of you that's watching online, the greatest prayer you can ever pray. It's not a prayer to say, God, I want to please you. That is, that's the most ridiculous thing you can pray. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, but without faith, it's impossible to please God. Or without trust, it's impossible to, you cannot, forget trying to please him. Forget that. Start praying for him to give you the grace to trust him. Because when you get to the point where you're trusting him, you are willing to embrace his story, his direction, his narrative above what you used to believe. Jesus was right there at Gethsemane like you and I, in the pain, in the heat of a great agony and pain. And he's like me and you said, Father, is it possible for this cup to pass over me? Then quickly answer the question. Now that, that helps you to know that Jesus was human. All human and all God. In his humanity, he said, oh man, this is too much, man. Am I willing to do this? Am I willing to forgive my, forget my, forgive my enemy? Am I willing to love more? It was, it, was, it was really agonizing. But he said, not my will, but let your will be done. Why? Why did he resign his will to God? Why? He trusted his father. He trusted his father. This morning, I want to challenge us. I want to challenge all of us to a place of renewed trust. Let's lay aside every weight and the sins that don't so easily beset us. The sin of unbelief that will not allow me and you to say, God, I want to embrace you. I want to trust in what you are saying. I want to believe your narrative for my life. I want to embrace your new kingdom directives. I just need your help. Can you help me to trust you more? Jesus, help me to trust you more. If you're here right now, under the sound of my voice, and you say, Pastor, I want to trust God more. Why don't you come to this altar now? Let's pray about this. This may be the best prayer you ever pray in a long time. Asking God to give you the grace to trust him so they can live more, love more, give more, and serve more. So God, I want to trust you more. Yes, my opinions sometimes interfere with my ability to trust you. I'm so strong in my human composition that I'm always thinking to analyze why, why, why. And God is saying, stop doing that. Just simply trust me. Can you guys give me that my song? Thank you very much. So sweet to trust.